Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries, and the true story of an event that rocked the world of psychiatry and brought the subject of reincarnation rocketing to the surface of public consciousness in 1956, when the spirit of a 19th-century Irish woman named Bridget Kathleen Murphy, nicknamed Bridie, poured hours of her life story into six long recording sessions with an amateur hypnotist, all given to us by a Pueblo, Colorado mother and housewife who volunteered for hypnosis, sought no public attention, and who had never been to Ireland. That story becoming a million-seller book and blockbuster movie in 1956, called The Search for Bridie Murphy. And what a search it was and has been. The subject of reincarnation is a very sensitive one to certain sectors of organized religion, it's also a subject which is debated hotly by believers and non-believers, and treated with caution and fear by many who choose not to discuss it. It's an easy target for skeptics who say it, it meaning the pseudoscience, has never been proven, and it lives in the realm of the paranormal. In psychology, regressive hypnotherapy for the purpose of curing psychosomatic ailments is accepted, though closely guarded and left only to experts while parlor hypnotists, they say, give it a bad name, especially when it comes to regression, regression to past lives. Many still consider it to be a pseudoscience, and that regressive hypnotherapy that goes the next step, revealing past lives, in addition to early life, is an area reserved for believers who can afford it. As the classic TV show The Twilight Zone once told us, it is the middle ground between light and shadow, between science and superstition, and it lies between the pit of man's fears and the summit of his knowledge. This is the dimension of imagination. It is an area which we call the Twilight Zone. The year was 1942. It was a cocktail party at someone's home in Pueblo, Colorado. There were a few dozen people there just having a nice time talking, mixing, having fun. The men were wearing mostly business casual, the ladies, dresses. People generally dressed nice in those days, even for casual get-togethers. Maury Bernstein was a young businessman, successful, smart, and well-respected. His wife Hazel, pretty, smart, a devoted wife and housewife, and in the days before the term domestic partner came into being. Maury and Hazel had brought a guest with them. Just as they were preparing to leave their home for the party, the phone had rung. It was a traveler from out of town, a close friend of one of Maury's business clients, who had been referred to Maury should he ever pass through Pueblo. So he called him and asked if Maury could recommend a good place to stay. And Maury did one better. He said he and his wife were going to a cocktail party that evening, They'd be glad to pick him up and take him if he'd like, and then drop him at a good area lodge after the party. The party was at the home of Virginia and Hugh Teague. Hugh was ex-Air Force and a sales manager at a local Buick dealership. Virginia was a proud mother of three kids, loved her husband and family very much, and enjoyed the circle of friends they had, sharing cocktail parties and bridge tournaments. The Bernsteins and the Teagues got along well. Not long after their arrival, Maury and Hazel were surprised to see their guest pulling up a chair to face another party guest. As it turned out, he was a parlor hypnotist. 
He was speaking to a woman volunteer whose name was Lois in a soothing voice and asking her to watch the light he was slowly moving in front of her eyes. His voice slowly rolled on. You are very tired. Your eyes are closing. And you feel a relaxed sleep coming on. You're in a deep, refreshing sleep. You're enjoying it. It feels wonderful. When her eyes closed and her head relaxed, Maury stepped in and asked her, Okay, the game's up, Lois. Come on, stop fooling us. But she was oblivious to his comments. Maury, feeling a little embarrassed because he had brought this guest, asked if Lois had come with anyone, and a man who had been watching closely stepped up, introducing himself as Dr. John Deering, and stated that he was Lois's fiance. Maury asked him, You're a doctor? You really believe this mumbo-jumbo? And the doctor looked at Lois's eyes, then at the hypnotist, and then at Maury, and said, Yes, she was in a hypnotic trance. She had volunteered, although she had never seen anyone hypnotized. The other ladies in the crowd confirmed that she had volunteered. The hypnotist guest kept going. Lois, he said, we're going to drift back through time until we get to your 14th birthday. Now you're 14 years old, and it's your birthday. And Lois smiled at that point, happy that today was her birthday. She was in the time. Where are you? he asks. At home, she answers. 387 Linden Drive. In Pueblo? he asks. No, Kansas City. Can you tell us anything particularly nice about your birthday? Then she smiled. Bobby's such a fool. Can you see the scratch on my wrist? Bobby Kane gave me a copy of Forever Amber, and Bobby got so mad, he grabbed my wrist and put this scratch on it. There was no scratch on her wrist, and it was obvious that she was speaking as if she were living in another time. For the next few minutes, the hypnotist took her back to her seventh birthday, and then her fourth birthday, and with each walk back in time, her voices and the content of her memories matched perfectly with what she would have sounded like and what would have happened in the lives of a seven- and a four-year-old, her life. All Maury could do was watch in amazement. Then the hypnotist began taking her back to the present, but before waking her up, he added a post-hypnotic suggestion. Lois, after you wake up, you are going to remove your right stocking and shoe and hold them in your hand. After the countdown, her eyes opened, she smiled at the crowd surrounding her, then demurely reached down and removed her shoe, and, reaching beneath her dress, she then removed her stocking. The crowd watched in amazement. One asked, Lois, why did you just remove your shoe and stocking? which caused her to realize for the first time that she was holding them in her hand. And she replied, Why, I don't know. And then, I hope I didn't embarrass myself, did I? And they all assured her, no, it was all in good fun. Maury asked his guest to put him under, and they tried. But Maury had to settle for the answer that roughly 25% of people just cannot be hypnotized. On the way to dropping their guest off at a nearby hotel, Maury was peppering him with questions. How long had he been doing this? How far back in time had he taken people? Is it true that hypnotism can be used to cure the urge to smoke? Maury had been bitten by the bug. In the following weeks and months, he studied everything he could find on hypnotism, and Hazel supported his new hobby. She had had bad migraines since her teen years, really bad ones, 
and the doctors could do nothing. Morey cured her using post-hypnotic suggestion. He also paid a visit to Dr. Deering's office and asked if he could do any side work for him, to which Deering agreed, as a part-time occupational therapist. It was now the, it was now the early 1950s. Dr. Deering would oversee all of Bernstein's work, and Bernstein was finding that some incredible things could be overcome using the power of the mind. He actually cured one of Deering's patients who had all the symptoms of polio. In that case, the older woman had lost her sister to the disease and developed a psychosomatic or sympathetic mirror illness. One of Maury's relatives had a son in college who had lived most of his life with a terrible stuttering problem and even recently tried to commit suicide. And Maury helped him stop the stutter completely. Through the late 40s and into the early 50s, people began to hear how Maury had helped others, and he helped whomever he could, never taking any money in return. It was taking time away from his business, but Maury got tremendous satisfaction knowing that he was helping people. He was also expanding his studies in hypnotism, especially in the area of past life regression, and although originally very skeptical of it, he was becoming more and more curious, and he was learning more. The British psychiatrist Sir Alexander Cannon had claimed that he had hypnotized over 1,000 individuals who had recalled past incarnations. Edgar Cayce, who many considered to be the most documented psychic of the 20th century, did things a little differently, in that he could lie down and place himself in a trance, and then recall, with detail, the past lives of names that were given him. Casey was much better known for the healing solutions he was able to give people, as this could be and was well documented in terms of success or failure. And his remedies for every kind of human ailment were often successful. He drew from a source which he called the Akasic Records, a flow of information which he said exists and which, when tapped into, holds all the history and future of all humanity, all knowledge, a sort of cosmic supercomputer. The downside, of course, often hazy and hard-to-prove answers, many times lacking in provable names, dates, places, and details when it comes to past lives. One night in 1952, Maury and Hazel were visiting Virginia and Hugh Teague, and Maury asked if Virginia would consent to being hypnotized, the purpose being to see if they could take her back to a past life. She talked it over with Hugh, and they agreed. One for science. And what harm could it do? One week later, they met again. Three couples, the Teagues, the Bernsteins, and Dr. Deering and his wife. And the first session began. Virginia turned out to be an excellent subject, and she described moments in her childhood with excellent recall. Then Maury asked her to go back to her previous life. Virginia? I want you to go back as far as you possibly can, back in time. Are you there? In a dreamlike trance, she answered, Yes. What's your name? he asked. Bridie, she answered. Friday? asked Maury. No, Bridie. Do you have other parts to your name? Murphy. Bridie Murphy. My name is Bridie Murphy. "'Where do you live?' he asked. "'Cork,' she answered. "'Cork.' "'What country is that?' "'Ireland.' "'When were you born, do you know?' "'She answered. "'December 20th, 
1798. And there it began, as Virginia Teague, through the course of six long recording sessions, told Maury about her life in Cork, from her date of birth in 1798 to her death in 1866 and beyond. Her narratives were packed with descriptions of the country, people, social and religious tension between Protestants and Catholics, and life in Cork and in Belfast, where she shopped and was married and lived during those years. We'll continue with the search for Bridie Murphy right after this message from our sponsor. And now, back to our story. Session one, in the beginning, went back to Virginia's own childhood, in which she relayed, with ease, the names of the students who had sat in front of and behind her in first and fourth grade, as well as many other details of childhood that most of us are unable to recall. And she began at the age of four, where she was upset and breathing heavily because she had just been spanked for scratching the paint off her metal bedpost and she was angry at being spanked. Her father's name was Duncan, she said, and he, she proudly added, was a Protestant court barrister. Her mother's name was Kathleen. She went on to recall other childhood memories, such as playing hide-and-seek with her older brother Duncan, who had reddish hair like hers, at their two-story wooden frame home in a neighborhood called the Midlands in Cork. It was country, with just sparsely located homesteads scattered around, she said. She spoke of attending Miss Strain's school in Cork, where she spent her time studying to be a lady. Most of the time in class, the girls were being read to. No math, really, no science. All that wasn't needed back in those days for women. Their job was to attract a suitor and to get married. Her older brother Duncan would later marry Mrs. Strain's daughter Amy. Bridie said that she had a younger brother, but he had died in infancy. She recreated her marriage to Sean Brian McCarthy, and she used the term Sion for Sean. Actually, two marriages, one unofficial marriage in Cork when she was 20. The unofficial tag applied because he was Catholic and she was Protestant. So they were married first, unofficially, by her Presbyterian pastor in his office, and then later in Belfast, at which she named as St. Teresa's Church, close by to the cottage in Belfast to which she moved to live with her husband. In Belfast, they were officially married, she said, by a Catholic priest, Father John Joseph Gorman, of St. Teresa's Church. She would later describe the ride from Cork to Belfast, including the landmarks, the tobacco fields, and even the rope plant and the tobacco plant in Belfast, as well as the names of the grocery shops where she purchased her foodstuffs, John Kerrigan's, and Fires. She spoke with pride about her father-in-law, John McCarthy, who was a Roman Catholic who had attended Clongo's school and also said her husband was a barrister, who eventually taught law at Queen's University in Belfast, which was considered at that time to be a largely Protestant school. But some Catholics did teach there, she said. In her story, she positioned both her husband and her father as being barristers, a statement that might have been made to a casual social acquaintance who she was trying to impress, but one which might not have been totally accurate. Social standing was very important in those days, in which social classes were separated. Not a whole lot different than today, really. But certainly then, in a world where every town was small town in thinking and actions. The most remarkable thing was that Bridie was very human, and very consistent, skirting around tough issues, 
sometimes using selective memory, sometimes fudging the facts, sometimes distrustful of questions, as seen when Maury asked her where she kept her important papers and her money. To many who later read the book or listened to the actual sessions using the record that came with the book, it only served to convince them that this regression, accurate or not, was authentic. And I can tell you I have seen the movie recently, I've read the book, and I've gone through every article I could find on the Internet, and then I've researched some of the facts and details myself to see if I could verify them. And Virginia Teague's sessions are absolutely authentic, in my opinion. Bridie shared details of her wedding, the wedding dances, and one tradition of little bags of white rice that her mother had given her to tie to her leg when she left home with her husband, as well as having pockets sewn into her wedding dress into which people would put money during the post-marriage festivities. She shared and sang old Irish songs, shared folklore, and even a jig called the Morning Jig when she was asked to perform once when she came out of one of her trances, and which she did expertly. She described restaurant food as being served on flats, and after sneezing, asked Maury for a linen, not a handkerchief. She mentioned her travels with her husband, and kissing the Blarney Stone. All this occurred somewhere in the 1820-1830s, if her birth dates were correct, or even close. She described books that she had read when she took out of the lending library in Belfast, and when she spoke, she would often slip into a soft Irish brogue, using expressions and colloquialisms of the day. Her personality never faltering, her stories of her life clear and strong. To all in the room at every session, they were without a doubt in the company of a spirit, if you will, that had lived it, that was living it. Despite that, she was very weak on Ireland's history, and often did confuse things, such as her honeymoon trip with Sion, which she confused with a trip to Antrim when she was ten, which, by the way, she described with accurate detail. The most fascinating and controversial of Bridie's account was that of her death in the year she gave as 1864. In a tired voice, she described how she had fallen down the stairs early that year at the age of 66, and that that had made her an invalid, and she had to be carried anywhere she went. Then, one Sunday, while her husband was at church, she died. She said that she watched her funeral, which she described as her being ditched, a highly unusual way to describe her being buried. She described how her death affected her husband John, and she used John in the place of his given name, Sion, and that she had stayed beside him, trying to establish communication with him, but was frustrated because she could not. She wanted to tell him not to grieve for her, that she was okay, she said, and for him to move on. Virginia Teague continued, with Bridie, to the astonishment of everyone in the room, to say that she had waited around Belfast until Father John, a priest and friend of her husband's, had died, so she, Bridie, could tell him that he had been wrong about purgatory, which she said she did, and to which she said he admitted. If you're still wondering why this story is so controversial, that's one big reason. You didn't buck religious doctrine in 1956, and to prove that, one of the biggest critics to her story later was a Catholic priest who debunked much of her story. Unfortunately, adding his own facts in many places, facts which he later admitted were made up. More on him as we go forward. In 1954, William J. Barker, a journalist writing for the Denver Post Empire magazine, began the first series of stories about Bridie Murphy, 
using the alias Ruth Simmons for Virginia, by her request, and those stories became the most talked-about stories in Denver and surrounding. It was still two years before the movie and the book came out. Maury was listening to the tapes and taking notes between sessions. He knew he had to get more details, more story, because he was convinced that he was going to get a book out of this. Before the last sessions, he was talking to a publisher, and the publisher was asking for more details. As we briefly explained a few moments ago, at one of the sessions, Bridie was asked to talk about her existence after death, which she did. She said that in the spirit world, you couldn't talk to anybody for very long. They would go away. It was lonely. You could hear and see and think, but not touch or smell. And you were seen with your mind. You could care and love as she did for her husband. You didn't sleep or eat, and you never became tired. If you wanted to go to a place, you willed yourself to go there. You did not meet everyone from the life you left, although she did meet and speak with her baby brother that her family had lost when he was an infant. And he spoke to her in an adult voice. Time was meaningless, although she believed she had resided in the spirit world for about 30 earth years. She said she had died in 1866, and we know Virginia was born in 1923. Again, time and years and dates, not Bridie's strong points, as researchers were soon to note. Her mother, Bridie said, read to her often, one of her and Bridie's favorites being The Sorrows of Deidre, which, as a devastating article on Bridie in Life magazine would later say, was impossible. It said that the name Deidre did not appear in that book until 1905. That, like many other parts of her story, according to Life magazine and others, had to have been experienced by Virginia, who, incidentally, was referred to in almost all media as Ruth Simmons, an alias that Virginia Teague had insisted upon to protect her privacy. Bridie's use of old words such as loft, L-O-U-G-H, for lake, slip, for a petticoat, tuppence, as being coinage popularly used in the early to mid-1800s, flats to describe restaurant serving trays, and tup to describe men who were known as rounders, meaning those who were quick to fight, was proving controversial to some, who said in no way were those terms used by the Irish in those days, those same people having to eat those words in the wake of proper research, as we'll find out later. It seems that for those who were willing to listen, Bridie was giving a history lesson, and to a great degree, no matter how you think she came upon the information while in a trance, she was fairly accurate on a lot of details, which we'll find as we go forward. The first account of the Bridie Murphy story was published by the Denver Post under William J. Barker's byline. It quickly became a huge story. The story, as you've already heard, of a Pueblo, Colorado housewife, this time named Ruth Simmons, who recalled, in depth, a prior life as a 19th century Irish woman from Cork. The article was supportive of Bernstein and his volunteer, telling the story and not trending either way with his own bias. He made it clear that the hypnosis was genuine and not any kind of a hoax. For his good faith in retelling the story truthfully as he had seen it, he was allowed to attend some future sessions, and he stayed close with the family and kept up with the storms of protest, ridicule, and derision that followed the publishing of the book in 1956. In early 1956, Maury's publisher was interested and eager, and rushed the printing, 
transferring at the last minute to a smaller printing house without taking time to verify much of the content, which really wasn't the publisher's job, to be fair. This wasn't a research piece done for the American Medical Society. It was created for entertainment. But all connected with it knew that it would raise eyebrows, and the facts were going to be called into question, and they were. The book became an international bestseller, published in 30 languages, and originally included a phonograph recording of the first session, and the book created an almost overnight sensation. It was controversial, and it was interesting. Prominent figures in scientific and clinical hypnosis commented on the book, which actually opened a lot of doors for them interest-wise, and the book stayed on the New York Times bestseller list for six consecutive months. The book created a sensation. People would throw Bridie Murphy-themed come-as-you-were parties and dances, and jokes abounded, such as cartoons of parents greeting newborns with, Welcome back! Popular songs of the time included The Love of Bridie Murphy by Billy Devereaux's Devil Aries, and Do You Believe in Reincarnation by Lalo Guerrero. There was even a reincarnation cocktail that became popular. Comics like Stan Freeberg spoofed the book. Some churches banned it, and many a sermon was delivered that denounced reincarnation, and especially the spirit word, as explained, by Bridie Murphy. The past-life-themed 1956 film, I've Lived Before, is said to have been inspired by the craze. As previously said, the biographical details related by Bridie were not rigorously checked before the book's publication. However, once the book had become a bestseller, Almost every detail was thoroughly checked by reporters from a number of newspapers and magazines. One of the most notable of them being the Chicago American, who sent reporters to Ireland to try and nail down the background of Bridie Murphy, as well as to Chicago to trace down the childhood history of Ruth Simmons, i.e. Virginia Teague. It was then that the first doubts about her reincarnation began to appear. Though Chicago-American reporters spent all of one day in each of three Irish cities, Dublin, Belfast, and Cork. Bridie had said she was born on December 20th, 1798, in Cork, and that she had died in 1864. There was no record of either event, nor was there any record of a wood-framed house existing in Cork, and that there was no area in Cork called the Meadows, in which she said she had spent her childhood. Indeed, most houses in Ireland were made of brick or stone. She pronounced her husband's name as Sion, although Sion is pronounced Sean in Ireland. Critics said that Queen's University Belfast did not exist at the time Bridie claimed that her husband was working there. Bridie said she had gone to St. Teresa's Church on Donegal Road in Belfast. And as it turns out, there was indeed a church on Donegal Road, which was built in 1776, and existed during her time, but it was called St. Anne's. Could there have been a name change during that time? If not, Bridie got the road right, but not the name of the church. There were no records found of her birth, her death, her marriage, or her baptism, all non-existent. But then, any official records from 1850 and earlier in Ireland are practically non-existent. Some researchers came to the conclusion that the best way to arrive at the truth was to check back, not to Ireland, but to Teague's own childhood and her relationship with her parents. That's where her stories likely came from, they believed. Maury Bernstein, in his book, stated that his patient was brought up by a Norwegian uncle and his German-Scottish-Irish wife, 
However, he did not mention, said those investigators, that her birth parents were both part Irish and that she had lived with them until the age of three. He also didn't mention that an Irish immigrant named Bridie Murphy Corkle, who lived from 1892 to 1957, lived across the street from Teague's childhood home in Chicago, Illinois. Mrs. Corkle, they said, immigrated to the U.S. in 1908. And right there, the cork in the name Corkle had to be where she got the name of her childhood home, in Cork. Although Teague claimed that she did not know Mrs. Corkle's first or maiden name, and that she had never spoken to her. Beyond that, Mrs. Corkle's spinster sister, Margaret Murphy, was living with the Corkles in the 1930 census. So there, according to the Chicago American, was the Murphy connection. Keep in mind that Virginia, who was a young child then, knew nothing of the Corkles. We're going to get to more of those objections and the rebuttals as we go forward in this story. But as the story ended, it all amounted to a clear-cut case of cryptomnesia. The borrowing of facts and details from your earlier life to create a false narrative regarding your existence, or, or in this case, your past existence. Because of correlations with Teague's past life and discrepancies with the Ireland of the Bridie Murphy story time, writers such as Michael Shermer considered any paranormal interpretation of the case to be thoroughly disproven. As the movie launch approached in late 1956, there was a serious effort to, d- to discredit the story as being so much bunk. Headlines like, Bridie Murphy and Flying Saucers Keeping U.S. Public Well Entertained, and Bridie Murphy, A Big Disappointment, were legion. That one, by the way, Bridie Murphy, A Big Disappointment, offered by the Paulist Feature Service, Washington, D.C., which was a Catholic news service, and one that fully debunked Bernstein's Bridie Murphy story, not only saying that it made a shambles of the Christ story, but that it was totally unscientific and presented a trail of non-facts that could not be verified. Their leading non-fact was that Bridie spoke of being married in a church that hadn't been built until 1911. Others poked ridicule at Bridie for never mentioning the potato famine, which was a terrible time in Ireland during her life, as well as for Bridie saying she had bought clothing and shoes at a Belfast store, at a time when almost all shoes, with the exception of the very wealthy, were made at home. Joe Bullen, a friend of Maury Bernstein's, spoke with author and columnist Arthur Pendergast about Bernstein, Teague, and the Brady Murphy story. He recalled Maury inviting himself and his wife to listen to the tape of session one, and then to attend all future sessions, which he and his wife did. It was no hoax, Bullen said in a 1999 interview, Bullen being one of the last survivors of the original crowd. It was contrary to my beliefs, said Bullen, and it changed almost instantly some of my beliefs. Bullen would later help devise questions for Maury, and he was absolutely firm on the legitimacy of Bernstein's efforts and of Virginia Teague's honesty and lack of duplicity, as were all the people who witnessed their sessions. When the debunking came, Bernstein did his best to deflect a lot of the criticism, but Virginia Teague, whose real name was made public by Life magazine and others, ended up taking most of the abuse. Teague and Bernstein had challenged the public that in many cases really wasn't ready to accept any of the results of regressive past-life hypnosis any more than they were ready to accept little green men and UFOs. Virginia Teague once said to a reporter, Bridie cost me a lot of sleepless nights, 
Probably the main reason I've kept my cool is that I'm not convinced I was Bridie Murphy or anyone else. So here we are, after hearing about the release of the book and the movie, and understanding the level of abuse that Bernstein and company received when teams of researchers reported on inconsistencies in Bridie Murphy's story, and then subjected Virginia Teague's real life to the litmus test to see if she wasn't subconsciously telling stories based upon those of her childhood or belonging to people she had grown up around in the years of her youth. The Chicago American, previously mentioned, a Hearst newspaper that, coincidentally, had lost out on a bid for serial rights to Bernstein's book, decided to run a splashy expose on the life of Virginia Teague. She was the daughter of George and Pauline Reese, the expose read, born in Wisconsin, and having lived briefly in a wood-framed house. Aha! There's the wood-framed house. But when she was three years old, her parents separated, and she was sent to live with her father's sister in Ohio. The expose claimed that she picked up stories of Ireland from a distant relative, that she acquired a brogue accent through dramatics lessons in school, and drew on names and incidents from her own past to create Bridie's story out of whole cloth. The paper said they found relatives who verified the story that she had scratched paint off her bedpost. And the most damning evidence. At one point in her many moves around Chicago, Virginia had lived across the street from a woman named Bridie Murphy Corkle, of whom we talked about just a few minutes earlier. Corkle's son wasn't hard to find. Her son worked as an editor for the American. All that was required then was to see if any of Virginia's addresses came near his mother's home. And what do you know? One did. Blockbuster gotcha moment. The paper also claimed that Virginia had a stillborn younger brother. She didn't, but it made no difference, as the retraction was made some time after the article. An agenda on the part of the paper did become evident when a sister and aunt that Virginia hadn't seen for years, and who clearly resented her newfound celebrity, added to the pileup. In a letter to Maury Bernstein, Virginia, who went by Ginny, by the way, confided to Maury that her aunt had scolded her, saying, Remember, Jenny, there has been only one person returned from the dead, and that was Jesus Christ, and you have placed yourself at his level. One of the journalists known to have splashed her a few times, and not with holy water, was Reverend Wally White, the pastor of a fire and brimstone church that Jenny had attended as a child. In his reviews, he made no bones about the fact that he wanted to crush this reincarnation nonsense once and for all. Then came the article, Bridie's Search Ends at Last. She was in Chicago all the time. Virginia Teague was born April 27, 1923, the daughter of Mr. and Mrs. George Burns, not the one who played God with John Denver, I know what you're thinking, who lived in Madison, Wisconsin. Shortly after their third birthday, the marriage broke up, and she was sent to live with her father's sister, Mrs. Myrtle Grung, and her Norwegian husband in Chicago. Virginia was lucky. She had a normal childhood, went through grade and high schools, and eventually attended Northwestern U, at least for a year and a half. At the age of 20, she married a young Army Air Corpsman who was killed in World War II. Then later, in Denver, she married Hugh. They lived in Pueblo and had three kids. She later divorced Hugh and remarried a man named Morrow, becoming Miss Virginia Morrow, until her death. Following the movie, there was a pile of scientific dribble about the client and the therapist subconsciously both trying to achieve a result that satisfied their quest to challenge known science. 
He did a poor job of leading her, they said, which prompted her to give him the story he wanted. And she, they said, was only too eager to comply by weaving stories she had borrowed from those in her childhood past. Jenny had had it with all these people. She asked for and got an interview with William Barker and another Post reporter, and she fired all her guns. She said that Reverend White, whom she had never met before, had shown up on her front doorstep pretending to be a reporter. He tried to get information from her, and then, upon abruptly leaving, said he would pray for her. The Irish relative, who had supposedly been a part of Ginny's young life, and wasn't, had spent most of her life in New York and Chicago, and never regaled Ginny with Irish lore. They had scarcely met before Ginny was eighteen. She also knew who Mrs. Corkle was, but never heard her first or middle names. She had no interest in Irish drama or songs or folk dances. She did not lose an infant baby brother, and she never scratched paint off a bed and gotten spanked. And she certainly had never been to Ireland. Then William Barker decided enough was enough. It was time to do a little defense. He asked the Denver Post for and received a ticket to Ireland. Not for a day, as had the Chicago American journalist and others, but for as many days or weeks as it took to get to the bottom of the story. And he did. And this is where the story gets really interesting. Join us next week for The Search for Bridie Murphy, Part 2. And you'll get the incredible whole story of The Search for Bridie Murphy. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. We want to welcome new supporters who have joined us at patreon.com forward slash 1001 Stories Network. Thank you so much, and it's great to have you with us, and it's great to know you're helping to support our show. We also had a lot of new people joining our group, our Facebook group, at facebook.com forward slash 1001 Heroes. It's great to have you there as well. We thank all of you for being such great fans, for sharing our show, telling others about it, even helping people learn how to subscribe, which is all free, by the way. And if you're ever in doubt, all you have to do is Google 1001 Heroes or 1001 Stories Network to get access to all of our shows. Thanks for joining us, and we'll be back in one week with part two of The Search for Bridie Murphy. Hope you enjoyed it. We'll see you soon. (laughs) 